Good morning. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 17 through 29 this morning. And my name is Ryan Chase. I'm another one of the elders here. So good to be with you. We, we look forward to this day, this moment, all week long. And it is a tremendous privilege for me to stand here and bring God's word to you. Last August, allegations came out, published in Christianity Today, that world-renowned international apologist and evangelist Ravi Zacharias had, quote, engaged in sexual misconduct and abuse of at least three different women. And on February 9th of this year, so just a couple weeks ago, the law firm that had been commissioned to investigate those claims reported that they had been able to corroborate one of those accounts for sure. They also disclosed they had found significant evidence of sexual misconduct involving multiple other women. And to everyone familiar with Ravi Zacharias and his ministry, those revelations are shocking, heartbreaking, bewildering. How could someone who preached the gospel so powerfully, someone who reasoned so persuasively as an apologist, how could he have lived so poorly, so heinously? How could he have engaged in such sins? And sadly, Ravi Zacharias is not the only example of high-profile Christian ministers secretly guilty of heinous sins. The stories of... Pastors caught embezzling money or having affairs or all kinds of other sins are just way too common. And the ramifications of that kind of sin are devastating. Christians are left confused, disillusioned. The name of Jesus is dishonored in the world when stories like this come out. Why does that happen? Where does that come from? Why do people who claim to belong to the people of God and who possess God's special revelation and have the outward signs of the covenant that God has made with his people and people who have benefited from that covenant and been in community with other believers and under the preaching of the word and even preached the word themselves, how could they nonetheless dishonor God so flagrantly by violating his law? It's tempting to many to locate the problem externally. Whenever there's a scandal like this, everybody launches into diagnosing what happened, what went wrong. And as I paid attention to those, some of those diagnoses on Twitter in the last couple weeks, I've seen all kinds of things. People blame celebrity culture. It's because there's this culture of celebrity speakers and there's no accountability for them. It's because of purity culture, actually, because the church holds up the standard of sexual purity and that creates secrecy and people are embarrassed. And so that's how this goes on so long. And people point to all kinds of external things that they say are to blame for scandals like this. But if we misdiagnose the problem, then we misprescribe the remedy. Romans 2, 17 through 29, diagnoses the source of all religious hypocrisy and graciously, graciously reveals the remedy. I invite you to stand with me out of our reverence for God and his holy, authoritative, sufficient word as we read Romans 2, 17 through 29. This is God's word. 
But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but If you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Let's pray. Father, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life, faithfully preserved for us in your written word. We want to hear them and believe them that our souls may live, that you may be glorified in us, and that our joy in you may be full. Amen. You may be seated. There's a sobering reality revealed in Romans 2, 17 through 29, which is that Many people who claim to belong to the people of God don't. That was true of Jews under the Old Covenant. It's true of many people today, many professing Christians under the New Covenant. Paul begins in verse 17 addressing those who claim to be Jews. They profess, they claim, they make this outward claim. I'm a Jew, verse 17, if you call yourself a Jew. That claim is based on ethnicity and external realities. And Paul ends this whole section in verses 28 and 29 with this shocking declaration of what it means to be a true Jew. And it's not what everybody thought. This text locates the human problem internally, inside the human heart, inside your heart, by showing how Two major external signs of God's covenant with Israel, the law, verses 17 through 24, and circumcision, verses 25 through 29, were both powerless to change the human heart. External things can't change the human heart. That's the the claim of this text. The law from God, as good as it is, cannot stop sin. It can't change your heart. That's the claim in verses 17 through 24. Paul begins with these two extensive lists, just enumerating the blessings, the benefits 
of possessing God's law. In verses 17 and 18, he's talking about very real privileges that come because, verse 18, because you are instructed in the law. These things are real. First, you call yourself a Jew. God's people were once called Hebrews. They were called Israelites. They came to be known as Jews. And to be a Jew means way more than just coming from a certain place. Like you're American if you come from the United States of America or you're Mexican if you come from Mexico. To be a Jew was more than just where you came from. It was about who you were, what God had done on behalf of his people. And so to call yourself a Jew was to claim to belong to the people of God. Paul says you rely on the law. That's a good thing. David's celebration of God's law in Psalm 119 represents how faithful Jews delighted in, desired God's law. Listen to Psalm 119, 14 through 16 as an example. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. That's how faithful Jews thought. Paul says, you boast in God. And that's a good thing. That's right. God himself commanded this. Jeremiah 9, 24, let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. You know God's will. What a privilege to know what the God of the universe, our creator and maker, what he requires of us. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of This law, God has revealed himself and his ways to us in his word. And you approve what is excellent, Paul says. Micah 6.8, he has told you, O man, what is good. How is it that you can approve what is excellent and you can discern between what's right and what's wrong? Because God has spoken. He's told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. All of this is good, and there's more. Paul goes on in verses 19 and 20 to describe the ministry of the Jews to the nations. And he says, so if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, this ministry of the people of God to all the nations of the earth is real and is rooted in the fact that they they had God's revelation. Verse 20, Paul says, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. That's true. That's what we have in God's word. And God did bless Abraham to make him a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And God did promise through the prophet Isaiah that his people would be a light to all the nations. And God did promise that there would be a day when all the nations of the earth would turn to God's people in order to learn God's ways. Just listen to the prophet Micah. Micah 4, 1 and 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and it shall be lifted up above the hills and peoples will flow to it. Many nations shall come and they will say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So the prophets foretelling a time when God's word is going out from the people of God to all the peoples of the earth and all the peoples of the earth are turning to the people of God and saying, teach us to walk in God's ways. We want to know this God. We want to walk in his ways. 
That was God's purpose, to have a people for his own possession who proclaimed his praises, the excellencies of God to all the peoples of the earth. But there's a problem. Verse 23, Paul says, you who boast in the law, actually, far from carrying this out like you think you are, you dishonor God by breaking the law. For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Why? Why is that happening? Well, look back at verses 21 and 22. You teach others, you don't teach yourself. You preach against stealing, but you steal. You say that one must not commit adultery, but you commit adultery. You abhor idols, but you rob temples. And Paul is not here claiming that all Jews are guilty of committing adultery or murder or stealing. It's not his point that all Jews are doing this. I think he's citing some of the more extreme examples that Jews hearing this would be able to nod their heads and think, yeah, I've, I've seen that. I've seen people who preach the law break the law. And in our day, names like Ravi Zacharias come to mind, or Carl Lentz, the celebrity Hillsong pastor from New York, came out last year that had been having an affair during all of COVID lockdown. We can think big names who have fallen in big ways, and Paul's point is to prove that the very people who possess the law and even teach the law are guilty of breaking the law, which means, here's the point, something more must be needed. Having the law, having God's word, having access to it, even standing up and preaching it, doesn't do what we really need done in us. Merely knowing God's law doesn't keep you, uh, doesn't mean you keep God's law. Knowing God's law does not cause you to keep God's law. Speed limits can inform you what the law is. They can be cited against you in court to condemn you for breaking the law. But we all know speed limits don't make you drive the speed limit. The law can't cause you to keep the speed limit. I had a great example of that this morning. I had this illustration already in my mind, and I'm driving down 57th Street, 40 miles an hour, and this car got, just flew past me. He must have been going at least 55. Just flying down. Then he turned north on Sycamore, and as I turned south on Sycamore, a guy at a red light looked both ways, quiet early in the morning, so he just went through the red light, and I was like, what is happening? <laughs> must be an emergency north on Sycamore that everybody's in a hurry to get to. We know the law, but the law can't make us keep the law from outside of us. As we saw last week in verse 13, it's not hearing the law that counts, it's hearing it with faith. It's the doers of the law who are justified. Merely possessing the law does not mean that you're safe from God's judgment either. If you get pulled over and you say to the officer, I know the speed limit, that's actually not going to help you. Knowing the law is not a good defense and ignorance of the law is not a defense. Breaking the law nullifies any benefit you would have had from possessing the law. So besides possessing God's law, the Jews also possessed another sign of the covenant. They had circumcision, and that's what Paul addresses in verses 25 through 27. Circumcision was the practice of cutting the, the foreskin of male members of Israel, and God himself had established circumcision with Abraham in Genesis 17. Listen to how God describes this. Genesis 17, 10 through 14. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant. That's what it is. It's a sign of the covenant between me and you. Verse 13. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. 
any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Those are strong words. You can understand why Jews took this pretty seriously. God himself said, if you don't follow this, you have broken my covenant. Circumcision was the external physical sign that someone belonged to the covenant people of God. And signs are wonderful. Signs are important. Signs are helpful. Think of a a wedding ring that symbolizes. Everybody knows what it means. Ring on your ring finger, on your left hand, symbolizes covenant faithfulness. Somebody belongs to an exclusive marriage. A, A police officer's badge is a sign of delegated authority to enforce local ordinances. A passport proves your identity as a citizen of one country when you're traveling to other countries. It's a symbol that means something. An external sign is convenient because it's outward and it's objective and it's observable. But outward signs can't guarantee true righteousness. Genuine obedience to God's law from the heart. That's what matters. So a wedding ring symbolizes faithfulness in a marriage, but wedding rings don't guarantee it. Neither could circumcision change the heart to produce covenant faithfulness. And between the symbol and the thing that the symbol represents, which of those is more important? That's a no-brainer. Imagine an adulterous husband who defends himself by saying something idiotic like, I still wear my wedding ring. How dense do you have to be to think that way? The symbol points to the deeper, more important reality, without which the symbol is just meaningless. The distinction that matters is not the symbol, circumcision in this case, but the reality that it points to, covenant faithfulness. Look at verse 25. Paul says, for circumcision is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who's uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded, that is, regarded by God as circumcision? Because he's actually obeying God, which is the reality that God always meant for circumcision to point to. Verse 27, then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. Why? How how could that be? How could an uncircumcised person be regarded by God as right with God? Because cutting the flesh can't change the heart. Verse 28, Paul says, because, for, because, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision, that is true circumcision, the reality that the sign always pointed to, it's not outward. It's not physical. You can just imagine a Jewish person thinking, Paul, what do you mean it's not outward and physical? Of course it is. Paul says in verse 29, a Jew is one inwardly. Inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. And for that person, that man, his praise is not from man, but from God. The claim of this text is that you must experience the supernatural work of the Spirit of God transforming you from the inside out. That's what has to happen. 
you must experience the supernatural work of God transforming you from the inside out. That's what Romans 2, 17 through 29 reveals. And I want to unpack that in the time that we have left. The gospel of Jesus Christ, this pure gospel that Paul is setting out for us in the book of Romans, it's unlike anything else in all the earth, all the other man-made religions, all the other human attempts to, to earn something from God. This gospel of Jesus Christ is unlike anything because it locates your problem inside of you, and then it gives you the most incredible promise that there exists hope, change in your heart is possible through Jesus. God does this work. So this work is not something you do, which is why we say you have to experience this supernatural work of the Spirit. It's not a natural work that any human can carry out. It's a work that God does to us. Look at verse 29. Circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. And Paul talks this way in Colossians 2.11 when he says, In him, Jesus, you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. This comes through the person and the work of Christ. This, this has to be something that God does. This is the new covenant reality that the old covenant prophets foretold by the Spirit of God. Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27 speaks of that new covenant promise and the work of the Spirit like this. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you. I will cause you. I will, God is saying. I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Who does the work? God does. God does this work in humans. From beginning to end, salvation is a work of God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Only God can save sinners. Only God can change sinful hearts. The, the fault of the law was not that its requirements were bad. It's not that it called for legalism or required us to do bad things that God changed his mind and said, ne you know, never mind. No, the, the weakness of the law was that it couldn't change the heart. It couldn't produce the obedience that it called for. But when the Spirit of God gives you a new heart, what we call regeneration, new birth, the result is obedience. God says, I put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules because your heart has been changed by work from God. Verse 27 speaks of those who are physically, or the Greek word means naturally, by nature, uncircumcised and yet keep the law, which is an incredible paradox. How could that be? How could people naturally uncircumcised obey God? Because God has done something in them. That grace is just thick in that. Not because of anything in them. It's not by their nature. It's not because they were better than you. It's not, there's no merit in them. They're obeying God because God has done something in them. It's a supernatural work of God. God alone can save. You must experience the supernatural work of the Spirit transforming you. It's a transformational work. The practice of circumcision always pointed beyond the physical right itself to this, this need for internal transformation. Circumcision is a surgical procedure, and it indicates the need for cutting away. 
for some change. When, when Paul says a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, he's saying no one is naturally okay. Everyone needs to be changed. Something has to be cut away at the heart level. A procedure has to be performed. And the old covenant pointed to this. Deuteronomy 10.16, Moses tells the people of Israel while they're waiting to enter into the promised land, Moses says, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. The problem with our sin nature is that there is this stubbornness, this resistance to God, and that has to be dealt with. It has to be cut away. Jeremiah 6 mentions uncircumcised ears as ears that can't hear and understand God's word. Moses uses that excuse when God sends him to speak to Pharaoh. He he describes himself as having uncircumcised lips, meaning he doesn't speak well. He lacks eloquence. So uncircumcised ears, uncircumcised lips, it's pointing to this inability. So what is an uncircumcised heart? Well, throughout Scripture, it describes the human sin condition. Stubborn in Deuteronomy 10.16 that we just saw. Stiff-necked, Acts 7.51. Resisting the Holy Spirit. Stephen says in Acts again, full of pride and iniquity, Leviticus 26, committing abominations and breaking God's covenant, Ezekiel 44, uncircumcised hearts are dead in sin, Colossians 2, incapable of loving God rightly, Deuteronomy 30. The idea of an uncircumcised heart comes up all over the place to describe our sin condition, and it's inside of us. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Listen to this promise. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. You get the order? God will do something to your heart and the result is you will love him. That's the greatest commandment. God has to do something at the heart level. That's transformation. That's a change. That's what Paul calls in Galatians 6.15 a new creation when he says neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. What matters is a new creation, a total transformation, new birth, regeneration. I think we've cited this maybe on a few occasions. One 18th century hymnist wrote, Run, John, run the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. The law makes demands that we can't carry out. The gospel makes demands and changes us from the inside so that we can carry it out. This new creation, the supernatural transforming work of the Spirit, it happens from the inside out. And that direction matters. Look again at Verses 28 and 29, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. The contrast is clear between the outside appearance and the internal, inside-out working of God. One of the hallmarks of self-righteousness, man-made religion, is the obsession with external appearances looking good without being good, wanting approval from others, which is why the last verse talks about praise that comes from God, not from man. 
Self-righteous people, what they're most concerned about is approval from other people, being seen by others. So Jesus warns in Matthew 6 against practicing your righteousness to be seen by others. And we all know that, that temptation, that the sinful heart skillfully twists good things like giving to the poor and fasting and praying into opportunities to just look good and impress people. If sin comes out from the heart, then that's where the change has to happen, in the heart. And external constraints, external conditions can't produce that. But when the Spirit of God changes your heart, then the Spirit causes you to obey from within because inside out is not inside only. It's not just, I was changed on the inside, I know you can't tell, I know nothing's happening on the outside. No, inside out starts on the inside and it works its way out from there. That's why verses 26 and 27 speak of one physically uncircumcised but who does walk in obedience, the obedience of faith. That's spirit and power, that's new covenant obedience. That's what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 7.19, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision but keeping the commandments of God. Not the circumcision commandment, not the ceremonial laws of Israel, but walking in God's moral laws. There's a distinction here. Or Galatians 5, 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. So I've cited three different verses that all sound like, you might think I just read the same verse three times, Paul says this again and again. What counts? Not circumcision or uncircumcision, a new creation, which he calls elsewhere keeping the commands of God, which he calls elsewhere faith working through love, which assures us that this obedience he's talking about is not legalism. It's the obedience that's produced from hearts that trust, trust God, faith, living faith, faith that works out through love, Galatians 5, 6. Those are the true people of God. So what about you? As you just think about your own heart condition, are you relying on external restraints, outward appearances, external circumstances for righteousness? Do you look to external controls Dieting is one of those things our, our culture is obsessed with. But maybe if I just eat the right foods and avoid the bad ones, my heart will be changed. It doesn't work that way. You can tell people are looking for external changes when they think, if, if only I lived somewhere else, if only I had a different job, if only I had a different spouse, if only things around me were changed. And the reality is you could change all those things and not be changed at all yourself. But if you come at it the other way, God does something in you by his spirit and his grace, and your heart is changed, then wherever you are, even if your circumstances don't change at all, everything's going to be changed because you were changed in the midst of that. You might not get a new job, but if your heart's changed in that same job you can't stand, things will be different because you will be different from the inside out. Your spouse may not change, but if your heart is changed from the inside, then your marriage is going to be different because you're different by the grace of God. That's the hope of the gospel. God is doing a work in the hearts of his people. Do you assume you'll be right with God based on any external sacraments? 
It's common in this part of the country to hear people who are living in total sin and rebellion against God, no interest in God or his word or his church or anything say, but I was baptized as an infant, so I know I'm good. I'm safe. I'm in. It's the exact same problem. The people of God are not those who have some external sign, but those who have this inner work of the Spirit of God. Is there any secret, unconfessed sin in your life? This work of God doesn't leave you unchanged. God God really means to purify his people, to change you by his grace. And so that question, as ominous as it may be, is full of promise of hope and grace. God forgives sinners. God changes the hearts of sinners. God does a work in you that you can't do yourself. The true people of God are marked not by external signs, but by internal change, transformed by the Spirit from the inside out. Look at verse 29. His praise is not from man, but from God. That's pure grace. Praise from God? This is not blasphemous. We, we praise and worship God. He deserves a kind of praise no one else deserves. This is more like the, the praise you give a, a puppy, right? He praised the puppy for coming when called. This approval, this commendation from God, think about what Paul is talking about. He's talking about people who were lawbreakers, people who were naturally uncircumcised, people who weren't right with God and deserved God's just condemnation. And what is this? God approving, God commending, God justifying, God counting righteous, people like that? What is it that pleases God? It's his work in you. And that's what puts our consciences at ease. That's what secures us and gives us comfort. What what is that? When God looks at you and finds you pleasing in his sight, it's because he did a work in you. He did that work, and his work is glorious to God because it displays his grace and his righteousness and his goodness, which Paul is going to unpack a lot more in the coming chapter. If it takes a supernatural work of God to change you and make you acceptable to God, then you you can be sure your salvation does not depend on you. Spirit of God does this. And God is eager. He's willing to do that. He's not reluctant. He's so much more generous and loving than you can fathom. Why does God do that? Why does God take sinful people who deserve his judgment and work in them a supernatural miracle, changing their hearts from the inside out when they don't deserve it to make them into something that brings him glory and honor? That's the answer right there, to bring glory and honor to his name. Listen to Ezekiel 36. I want to read this extended promise so you see why God does this. Gives us hope when you think, but but I don't deserve it. Ezekiel 36, 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. When you come to treasure the glory of God and God's passion for his glory, 
those reasons that God gives become the most soul-securing anchors because you know he will do this. He will, not because something in me deserves it, for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. This may be one of those Old Testament passages Paul had in mind when he was saying, the name of God is dishonored among the Gentiles because of you. You've profaned my name among the nations, but I'm going to work for the sake of my name. Verse 23, and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them, and the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. How is God going to do that? How is he going to vindicate the holiness of his name, and how is he going to cause all the nations to know that he's the Lord? How will he do that? Verse 24, I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the countries, bring you into your own land, and I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. That's how. And that's what God is doing today, making himself known to all the nations, vindicating the holiness of his name, which has been profaned by people who profess his name and live in sin. How is he doing that? By changing you in your heart, by his spirit, cutting out this heart of stone because Christ Jesus was cut off when he hung on the cross and bore all of your sin and all of your guilt all of your shame. That's how he's vindicating the holiness of his name on earth, by supernaturally transforming people from the inside out. Let's pray. Father, there is no God like you in all the earth or in the heavens above who has ever heard of a God like you who pardons sin, who changes sinners, who takes on responsibility for our sin that we might be made right with you? How kind of you, how generous of you, how patient and merciful of you to treat us not as our sins deserve but according to your grace in such a way that it's, it's clear to us we can't take any credit we can't boast in any of it we have no room for pride just, just complete humility that you would love us like this that you would treat us like this that you would work in us like this thank you Thank you, God. Make the glory of your grace, your grace that doesn't leave us in our sin but saves us out of our sin, the glory of your grace that has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Make the glory of that grace apparent to the world that your name would be honored and esteemed among all peoples. In Jesus' name.